Hi, everyone. Dom Famulara here. And, uh, you know, this wonderful journey continues as we meet so many different musicians that are in all aspects of the music industry. But, you know, from a drumming standpoint, what Vader does so well is it connects the power of the drum and the power of how we are as people to succeed when challenges are brought to us. And this is just exciting with our guest that we have today. But next week, August 3rd, man, this is going to be huge. We're going to have Haley Brunel joining us from Los Angeles, and she's a great drummer. She's also a singer, a guitarist, and a songwriter that is currently on tour and doing television hits with this rising star, Olivia Rodrigo, who's absolutely fantastic, including a recent stop at Saturday Night Live, which was just incredible. She's also involved with the Hit Like a Girl contest, so this will be loaded with lots of inspiring stuff, so please join us on the third with Haley Brunel. We'll have some fun for sure. This uh, guest that we have today is really pretty amazing. So I think we've got some footage that we have here. So I'm going to, I'm going to just, uh, let's play some footage first. Then I want to introduce Tony. We just happened to stumble upon this little divey club where uh, a little unknown band who was about to put out their major label debut record played a show and uh, and changed my uh, my faith in rock and roll again. That band was called At the Drive-In, and uh, they do that thing. They uh, they fill that hole that uh, the you know inside me that great music can fill. Now with that band, Thurston from Sonic Youth made a phone call to Mike D of the Beastie Boys and said, "Go see them now." You know what's the intangible? What's the thing in at the drive-in? Because they've had to take time off now because. Well, of well, let me tell you about about Tony. This is one intense son of a gun, and as you can see by his energy and his playing, it's just absolutely magical. It's something special today because it's inspiring and very moving. Tony Hajar defies grit, sacrifice, determination, perseverance, and passion. He's known for his work with At The Drive-In, but trust us, there's a lot more to Tony and that we're going to get into. So joining us from Los Angeles, please welcome Tony Hajar. Hey, Tony, how are you? Thanks so much for joining us, Tony. This is fantastic. Coming to us from L.A., sunny L.A. I'm sure the weather is beautiful out there, and uh, it's just so great to have you here with us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate this. I'm I've been looking forward to this. Oh, great. You know, we, we, we have this here, Tony. I mean, I, you know, I'm in my studio in New York, and I come out here, and from this studio, I'm able to reach and step into people's lives, and it's so amazing. And you know, your story and what, what you have been through and what you've done is just so moving at such an intense area. And that the video that you have, that we have that I was able to see, and if I pronounce this right, M.A. Nakia? Nakia. Nakia, yeah. And and I believe that was your mom's name, Nakia. Yeah, and Emma means Emma means mother. Yes. It was a short film that I was uh you know allowed to do um with my bandmates in the label in two thousand six. I was in a band called Sparta and uh I pretty much originally I pitched like a, a short film to the band to do alongside of the record. And I said, you know, we'll get a little budget and go from there. Um and my uh, singer at that point goes, if you're comfortable with it, why would we do some, you know, fiction movie when you have uh, such a cool story? Let's let's, if you're comfortable with it, let's do your story and make it as interesting as possible. Uh, and after a lot of thought, um, I agreed to it. We got a small budget. We filmed it in our hometown. We brought some crew from LA um, and used a lot of El Paso crew, and it ended up doing really well. And it was. Uh, Something I never thought I would ever 
due. And it was really a, a big surprise for it to be in, you know, some, sh you know, short film festivals and got, got played a few places. So it was an honor to have that. Well, listen, your entire life is something you could have never thought could happen. <laughs> right. If you think about it. So I want you to go back. You were born in Lebanon and, and just talk about the, the civil war that was going on at that time and how old you were. Just, just, just brief us up on that story. Sure. Um, you know, the, the Civil War started, I believe, in October of 1976. Um, and what was going on, like, the kind of the myth was that the Lebanese were such happy people that they didn't realize that the Syrians were at, at the border ready to attack. And, um, and, you know, like the Lebanese were partying while people were planning a war behind them. And um, the Syrians attacked and, uh, you know, the, the war started and it was really intense. And um, in 79, my family decided to, you know, get green cards and get the hell out of Dodge. And uh, we ended up in El Paso, Texas, uh, because uh, we had a lot of family there. And I recently, as of two years, no, three years ago, found out that, you know, I thought we were just leaving because, you know, we need, we need a new life, get out of Lebanon. But I recently found out my I thought my dad was just a police officer for m many years, not just, but you know what I, you know what I mean? And um, I later found out he was a special forces officer and they were pretty much told to flee Lebanon because they were going to be the first to get, um, you know, headhunted. Yeah. So we, so we moved to El Paso where we had a lot, like all my dad's family, pretty much about 80, 90% of it. And so we kind of, lifted you know lifted our roots and and got out and now looking back to it you know my dad was 41 years old when he did that and i can't imagine being this kind of like you know badass you know in love in beirut and literally folding t-shirts at my uncle's clothing store you know and uh it's it's a hard pill to swallow you know i've been there a few times in my life yeah. when you're like seeing the top and then not seeing the top anymore yeah. and uh and it's it's a tough thing you know so it was a big shift for us i was young i had the the least to really really worry about my brother was 16 my sister was 14 so like formative years you know and uh and then you know shortly after that um my mom's cancer she had been diagnosed in in beirut but it got really really bad and got worse and and uh, my my dad ended up leaving back to Lebanon, and uh, a few years later, and my brother, at uh, eighteen, kind of took over the whole family and was, uh, um, you know, like kind of dropped out of college, got two jobs, was helping an ailing mom. You know, I was, um, you know, I was a little boy at that point. You know, I was, God, how old was I? Uh, seven when he was 18 and uh and so you know a few years later uh when i was 14 my mom ended up passing uh the, the cancer had hit her brain at that point and there was no coming back years of chemo years of pain and she always said that you know i'll only leave you when i know you're ready that's when i'll give up and you know i i she i guess she felt 14 was that age because i mean she just couldn't fight anymore she was yeah. too weak. And at that point, my, one of my uncles was supposed to become my guardian. Uh, but my brother asked him not to do it. And my brother said that he'd take over. Um, and uh, so he became my, my guardian at like 24 years old. Mm -hmm. He was 24. Mm -hmm. 
so that's kind of the beginning of my life, really. Well, what an incredible story. So, so do you have memories of Lebanon and what it was like when, when you were younger? You know, I don't have many memories. I have memories of like the, the party. We lived in a high rise because Lebanon's kind of like Beirut. Uh, I mean, uh, Beirut is a little bit like New York. It's high rises and stuff like that. I have, I have memories of the first, you know, of the like the last party. I have memories of being at the beach. You know, they always said it was, you know, they call it the Paris of the Middle East. And I do have very small memories of you know, seeing snow on the mountain, but being at, at the beach. And, uh, you know, it, it, it is and was, especially then, a very, very beautiful place. But, you know, I think my brother and my sister have way more memories than I do. And where, what, what, why El Paso? What, what happened? How did you get to El Paso? So we had a lot of relatives that just went to El Paso, like, you know, distant, distant cousins and, and uh, a, you know, generation older than my parents. They went out there and they just kind of, you know, set some roots, you know, and and uh, started businesses and and got really, really busy with that. And then uh, two of my my dad's brothers had moved there, too, because of their wives. And so it just was like, that's where we're going. We're going to El Paso, Texas. And uh, so that's, where, that's why we ended up in El Paso. Is El Paso and the landscape of El Paso similar to that of Lebanon? You know, well, in, in, one, in one respect, like, you know, Lebanon is not very desert, you know, but, you know, uh, well, at least where we lived, we, Beirut was like, you know, like a sprawling city. It was like, you know, like New York City. Um, but it was warm. I'd still like to be places that are, you know, I don't mind hot. We go to Palm Springs four times a year because I love it being 110 degrees. <laughs> and, uh, and so like, and I think that's where I kind of gravitate to and stuff like that. So, but El Paso was, a, you know, it's, it was a culture shock, I think for my family, especially. And, uh, you know, now I understand why. What well, kind of is, so, so how did drums enter into the life? How, how did music enter into the picture? I was, I was obsessed with with metal from a young age. I, I had friends in the neighborhood that were older than me and were really nice to me and showed me, you know, from Motley Crue to uh, the first few Metallica records. And I was definitely drawn to the, the angry side of music. I had a lot of anger growing up. And uh, so if there was a music that, that was going to kind of show me the path, it was metal. And, uh, and so I used to just air drum. I had no sense of drums or wanting to be a drummer but i did realize that i could buy a, a a cheap guitar in juarez mexico you know just cross the border and get a cheap guitar i got so i ended up saving up for one and my brother helped me buy it and then i bought a little cheap amp at the local record store uh, re, uh music store called the melody shop in this this little mall and then you know i was trying to play guitar and uh it just i was just didn't have any anything i couldn't i couldn't do it no one you know obviously i couldn't afford lessons and all that stuff so it was kind of just on my own and it just wasn't really working and one of my cousins who was had money and i would go visit them a lot and and they had this rogers drum set in this back room they had in the house and for the drummers out there um you guys might remember this rogers was trying to do clip-on heads pre-tuned clip-on heads Right. And um, and so th that's the kid he had. I would go back there and bash, and all my cousins would run in and say, "Stop playing! You're horrible!" And I was like, "Okay." And then one day, my brother found out that my cousin was selling that drum set, and my brother needed an escape from his crazy life of working two jobs and not being able to be 
a kid really. And so he bought the drum set for $50 from my cousin and he brought it to his back room that we had at our house. And my mom was still around at that point. It was just my mom, my sister, my brother and I. And so one day this girl I knew, um, it brings this guitar player to my house and he knows like every song, every Metallica song, every, everything. And I'm like looking at the guitar, like I can't, I can't play with this guy. So he literally looks at me and he goes, why don't you play the drums? <laughs> and I literally, I walked to the drum set and I was like, okay. And I just sat down and, and just when he said it, I, I remember feeling like this is probably what I should be doing. And, um, and slowly, you know, all the heads broke. So I was getting like pinstripes, remote pinstripes and just putting them on top of the snare with like, with no rim because they were clip on head. So I would just like hit it until the pinstripe destroyed. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so then fast forward a year or two and there was another cousin that was like, his parents were great to us. They knew that we didn't have much and we were alone at that point. And so they would invite us every Sunday to eat and just to hang out with them and stuff. And then, so that cousin goes, Hey, so I hear you're into drums. I'm like, yeah, I'm trying. And he goes, in the attic, I got a drum set. You'll see they're labeled drums. Go open the boxes. And I said, oh, really? And I got super excited. I go to the attic, start opening the boxes. And I pull out. I remember now I know what size it was. Back then I didn't. But I pulled out a 14 by 15 uh, Ludwig Vistalite charcoal. like, oh. uh, and, uh, and I was like, oh, my God. So I started pulling out all the drums. And it was a 14, 15, 18. 14 by 24, massive crack in the 14 by 24. And I, I didn't care. I was just like, oh my God. So he gave me that kit and a, a matching snare. And I, that changed my life because that was a real drum set. I didn't have to place heads on top of the, the snare for it, you know, like. And so um, I literally bought silicon because I heard that could keep the, the, the drum together. Yeah. And I literally, I silicon the drum. And then I, <laughs> I would put the head so tight on the kick drum so it could stay in one piece until <laughs> until I, I got all these side jobs and I saved up 200 and uh, I, I $225 and I bought a Ludwig rocker kit, a black, you know, whatever wood they were using at that point. And then I made that the kick and that literal, that setup right that I just said was the kit that I did all my real bands in and that's what i did all my initial touring with without the drive-in uh the first eps in casino out which was our full length before the our first major label record so that kit was my everything and i and i actually still have it and i wasn't able to keep a lot of stuff from my youth because i was living out of bags um but that's something i still have luckily so at this time, so you're playing the drums. Are you able to practice? Or do you have a place to practice where you can really kind of put time into it? So at that point, we get kicked out of our house because we can't afford the rent. Um, my mom's gone. She's passed. It's just my brother and I. We move into an apartment that, an apartment complex that his friend owned. And it was kind of a U-shaped apartment. And we we're at the end of the U. And we were like, and I'm not exaggerating, probably 30 feet from uh, railroad tracks. And uh, so, like, they would, the train would fly, it would shake our apartment. So all the people that were living there were really nice to me, and they knew that we had been through a lot. So they said, you are allowed to play the drums from 4 to 5.30 every day, and then you have to stop. 
And so I would run from school and I lived like probably two miles away from it. So I would run from school, take off all my stuff and like my bags and, and just start playing for that hour and a half before I had to start making dinner for my brother or whatever we were doing that day, uh, heating up food or TV dinners or whatever the case. But that's when my like really was diving in. And, uh, and that's, you know, that was a crazy time. That was, I was, I was like 16 and I was in and out of drums because of, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on in our lives. We were barely making it. And I, I was like, and I was, you know, I spent a lot of my youth pretty angry at life. And, and so I would kind of go in and out of drums. And I, I truly feel that I didn't really get serious until I was about to be 18, which is really late. I mean, uh, it's kind of sucks, but it is, that is my life. That is what it is. So I had to like make up a lot of ground compared to other, other people I knew in the, in the neighborhood that were playing since they were kids and had already been playing shows when they were 13 and 14. Like my, my bandmates in At The Drive, they were playing shows at a really young age. And I didn't play my first show until I was like almost 17, you know? And nowadays it's like, everyone's playing shows, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. But it seems like, you know, listen, you turned out to be an incredible person at many levels. And what's amazing is this could have easily slipped towards, with that anger, you could have easily slipped towards, you know, complete out of control child. What do you think kept you aligned to become the person you are today? Uh, really realizing the flaws of my father um, and, and making sure that I was there for my brother. My brother sacrificed his youth yeah. for me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm going to fast forward real fast. When I turned 25, I was on the road without the drive-in. We were playing Des Moines, Iowa. Still, like, sludging it. We had a 12-hour drive to, to Denver. And we were like, and then I had a, it was my birthday, my 25th birthday. And uh, I took a shot with Cedric, our singer, at the bar before we headed out. And he, and uh, and then that was, and I he goes, what do you wish for? I was like, you know you're not supposed to say. And I, I just wish for just one break. Like, like give, give us one break. Yeah. You know, I was being selfish. And I was like, I want a break. And literally we started get like, I felt that like there was a big shift after that time, you know, and whatever reason it was, but also now I'll go backwards. So the, the, the reason I felt that I never did is because I, you know, we grew up in a really rough area and yeah. rough neighborhood, but I had two best friends um, that um, I was in and out of their house uh, houses for years to give my brother a break. So he could go out, he could, you know, meet people, he could date, he could hang out with his friends. And so those two sets of parents, I really feel kind of kept me in line too. And yeah, I could have gone off the deep end, but I wanted to be there for my brother. My brother was already having enough problems in life. He didn't need a, a, a younger brother that's 11 years younger than him to create any more havoc. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I'm going to do great in school. I'm going to play drums. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get a degree. I'm going to do it all. But with, with the mentality of like when the right musical situation hits, I'm out. Yeah. Uh, and people were really nervous about that, especially my brother. But he was very supportive. Uh, and that was really the goal, like be there for him, cook for him, wash, like, you know, do my part, you know, while I was going, you know, to high school and stuff. 
And that's probably why, because I just I didn't want to I didn't want to give him more problems. Yeah. And wh where was your sister at this time? My sister at that point had moved out and, uh, had, you know, was with a serious boyfriend. I mean, she was young, too. She was going through her, her own yeah. uh, problems. And, you know, I, I would see her here and there. And we were it, it's not we were it's not like we weren't talking or anything. It just was like everyone was kind of surviving. She yeah. was alone surviving. And my brother was raising me surviving, you know, so um, that's why these these memories are mostly of my brother. Yeah. Uh, but it's not because of any other reason. But like it just was that's how, that was our situation. then. So you're being influenced by Lars Ulrich, Dave Lombardo, Vinnie yep. Paul. These guys are you yep. know, these guys are great, great drummers and dear friends. So what was it about the music and about the drumming that you were that you were drawing from them? To put into your playing because your playing is is kind of in that range but you have your own style and sound it's energetic it's powerful it's in your face and it's and it's driving at such a high level yeah well you know the the first one to give me like the the first drummer to give me chills it was tommy lee mm -hmm. and 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 the thing is like that that groove that he was doing at in 17 years old you know, just a, a four on the floor and make it make you feel like you're like moving, like he's doing a million things. That was the first guy. Like, you know, too fast for love, all those things, like really old records. Like how, how is a guy that young have that kind of pocket? So that was kind of this, that first thing to me, Lars Ulrich, besides the way he played and how he played, um, the biggest influence he had on my life is that he was the guy in the band that did all the business. He was he was a conduit for like James Hetfield and kind of arranged the songs. So that was kind of like everything that I wanted to do. I love you know to this day I love business. I love that side of 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 this of this world. You know I don't like to just be a quote unquote artist. I, I I've tried it and I've realized that I'm only happy when I'm doing both. Yeah. Um. So so that was a big thing for me. Lombardo was speed. Vinnie Paul was kind of everything. I always say I didn't steal. I, I stole the most from Vinnie Paul because like his groove still had power. Didn't have to be like the fastest or the most double bass or anything like that. It was just about groove and being in your face. And that was my favorite part about drummers. And he always played to the song. And, uh, and that's all I really care about, to be honest with you. I, I have songs that I purposely didn't play any toms on on my recordings because I was like, it always gets away with the vocal. And I always thought of the song as being the special part. I'm not here to to show you what I can and can't do. And, and to me, it was always about what what the vocal's doing. Even from a young age, I, I was I was very I was very keyed into the the vocal. Well, it's fantastic. So at, at 17, you're playing and you put together a cover band and you start to kind of get out and playing so what was that like you know where did you play what was it feeling what kind of tunes were you doing well it was a cover it was a cover band but my stipulation was like we have to write originals and we were writing like you know prog metal stuff you know and uh you know and 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 we were just trying to be as difficult as possible back then and just have as many changes and then we would throw our covers because we are the people that we knew before I knew punk rock and the punk rock ethic of like just going out and doing your thing, doesn't matter what people are saying and doing. We were like, okay, if we're gonna play these places, we have to play some covers. 
But in the in retrospect, it became a great thing because I I feel like it made me become a better drummer trying to learn whatever, you know, Megadeth to Slayer to, you know, even like I would to get into like these bars that I was too young to play. I would learn cover songs and, and like kind of fill in for people. And I at that point, I wasn't that great, but I was allowed to be on stage. And it was like it was really hard knocks for me because like I would mess up. I would literally learn them in my headphones and just go play them live that night like not no rehearsals at all so it's it those are the kind of balls you have when you're when you're like you know 19 years old <laughs> and like um but i've never do that ever in my life again but it, it, but the thing is like that's the stuff that kind of pushed me and when that metal band kind of fell apart you know i went complete opposite because into like a super alternative band and then I slowly start pe meeting people because El Paso is such a small scene in the punk rock community. Um, and then I joined a band called Two Edge that had broken up and then kind of reformed around me. And they had an amazing special drummer named Eric Salas. And people in El Paso will, will know his name more than anywhere. But he was, um, I don't know why it worked out that the band reformed around me, but it did. Um, and then that band, I shifted into At The Drive-In. And that's how I kind of, you know, started hearing stuff that I didn't know about. I heard, you know, like, I remember meeting Cedric um, at, you know, at a, a club that everyone played at. And he gave me a mixtape. And it had Fugazi, uh, Hoover, Indian Summer, a whole bunch of, like, you know, bands that um, were from, like, the Discord scene. And, you know, like, sh shoegazy, but, like but still powerful and heavy. And then to me, I was like, okay, that's the part I like about this, this genre. I didn't like the sleepy stuff. I liked the heaviness of Fugazi and stuff like that. And so, and they were, uh, they were very open to, to, to play with me because they knew that I would uh, like leave school, get on the road, give it all up. And, um, and I was driven just like they were. So when we all met, it was even though I was the fourth at the drive-in drummer, there was a lot of, there was just like immediate chemistry and kind of the balls out notion of like, you know, of, of, of going for it and looking back to that time. And now we laugh about it and talk about it often, but, you know, I talked with Omar a lot as we be, you know, kind of rekindled our friendship after the band broke up and I kind of ran the band with an iron fist, you know, and I, I really regret some of that. But I think it was out of desperation of like, we have to succeed. We have to make this. We have to do it. And, uh, you know, now, I, you know, that's not my personality as much, obviously. But it's like, I just felt that we had to do it. We had to prove everyone wrong, mm. you know. And we were all in a kind of the same situation. And uh, it was really nice to kind of find people in the same mind frame. So it was kind of interesting. So you, you went to college in El Paso. and. You know, chemistry, math, and engineering. Yeah. So, how long were you in college before you started to find the balance of, listen, this music thing is going to happen. I'm, I'm going for it. You know, uh, I was, I met the guys in at the drive-in my senior year of college. So I was already, I was taking electives. I was like, I was done with all the hard stuff. I was cruising. I was a, I was a chemistry, uh, lab, lab person. I was like literally a lab coat. Had had a job. Uh, like that I could have taken. I was also pre-med bound. I was studying for my MCAT. Like I was in a whole different like mind frame because I just thought it wasn't going to work. 
And the day I really, I, I really felt, I had met the active driving guys and I was like, at first I was like, I, I, I was in the band and then I, I literally quit the band at a, at a village inn, kind of like IHOP type place. Like, yeah. And I, and I, and I just told them like, uh, Jim and I were not like clicking and Jim and Cedric started the band. And I'm like, well, who am I to say that I'm not, you know, this is not working for me. It's not my band. So I left, I left the band. Um, my then my then girlfriend now wife like had moved to Dallas and I went out and I was like I tried out for bands in Dallas, which I didn't enjoy, and then I came back to all these messages from Omar going let's jam let's jam and these guys have to get ready for a tour, and I, and I kind of ignored it and I remember I was literally in the lab making it like a like a reaction, and someone knocks on the door and it's Omar and Cedric, and they're like hey we just want to talk. And that's when I knew, I was just like, this is it. Like, I don't know what it was. It was just the timing of it all. I'm like literally in a lab coat and these guys in all black come in and they're just like, we got to talk. And, and, and then on, I decided it was January 10th, 1997. I dropped out of college. I got kicked out of the place that I was living and I lost my job, my job all that day. And, <laughs> and, 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 and I went to this apartment. What was, where, what was your girlfriend at the time saying? I, at that point, you know, you have no care in the world. She's like, oh, cool, you know? <laughs> so she was like, you know, she knew I was, she knew I was very, very, um, you know, she always says, I, I always, I always know who your first love is, you know, after all these years, even like she knows that she knew that's what I was doing, you know? And, um, and so like, I, I, I just knew that that was it. I, I went to the apartment, some of the guys were living at, and I said, Hey guys, I just literally gave up everything and I have no place to live. So we're gonna do this right and everyone's like yep we're doing it and 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 so we would tour you know starve you know play to no one get things thrown at us people hated us and we'd come back and i asked the band if we could take every break as long as a semester so then i ended up finishing my degree and i got so far into my first semester of my master's and then we got a deal uh, and i'm forwarding because it was a lot of gruesome touring uh, we got a deal with Fearless Records, and we were gonna. We got a, we got a, uh, you know, we got enough money to record four days at a studio in Burbank, California, with Alex Newport, and we recorded that record live to to tape. I remember tracking the last song at 4 a.m., and we did the music in two days, and we mixed in two days. It was is something insane, or like no, I think tracked in three, mixed in two, and. Uh, and so, like, that was just always our work ethic. That's just how we always did things. It was always balls out. Always, like, no plan B. I, I guess I was the only one with a plan B because, I, you know, I, uh, you know, I, had, I had a degree, but I never looked at it as that that's what I was going to do. I always knew it was going to be music. So this was relationship of command, correct? Is that, that was no, this is, this is in, in Casino Out. So this is a record that it took us a year to sell 10,000 records. A year touring to sell ten thousand records, exactly. so we were still. But it was to us, it was like, it it was the first record to kind of put us on the map, because even though we were touring a lot prior to that, in Casino Out, and then uh, we did an EP called Via, uh, which was very eclectic for us at that point, and um, and that's those two pieces of music got the attention of labels and the major labels and a lot of in, uh, bigger indies. And that's those two pieces of music kind of put us on the map besides, you know, being on the road over 200 
days a year at yeah. that point. It was crazy. You're, you're yeah. like you're like slugging it on the road. You guys are pushing hard. Where do you think there's an there's got to be some spark of that drive that allows you to have you know this plan A we're going for it and just sticking with it the intensity the just just the the sheer perseverance of it all. I mean, it, it, you just kept on going. Yeah, we were, I mean, I I can't tell you the situations and 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 the thing is we're not alone. Uh, uh, you know. Thousands of punk bands have lived these experiences. You know, I, 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 I no way, shape, or form think we were the only people. Um, obviously, I just know our experiences. And, you know, we, we'd sleep in slaughterhouses. We would sleep in kitchens that we just played at, basements. This is the punk rock. This is what you did. And it was new to me. I didn't know that it, that's how people played shows. And But I loved it. I I. You know, I there's stories of me like falling asleep in, in the middle of parties with my sleeping bag all zipped up over my head so I could be the first driver. Uh, like, like this is all we cared about. We, we, were, we were just like, we're going to play. Most likely everyone's going to hate us. But if, if, we just keep, if we just keep chugging along, someone's going to like find, you know, see our work ethic and hopefully like our band. And it slowly started growing. We started getting, you know, 100, 200 people, 300 people. At our shows, and then we opened for uh, an indie band at that point that was doing really well called the Get Up Kids, mm -hmm. and they're from they're from the East Coast. Uh, no, no, they're from the Midwest. I'm sorry, and and so they were doing really well, and they took us out, and that's the biggest shows we were, we had played like 800 to a thousand people, and during that tour, I I was in Ottawa setting up my drum set. My manager calls me and he goes, "Hey, uh, Rage Against the Machine wants to take you guys out." And we were like, what? And because that was a you know a massive major label act yeah. on you know Battle of Los Angeles. So they're, they're, that's three records in arenas, you know. So what we 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 said yes, we were nervous, but we had at that point the power of we were about to go into the studio to record Relationship of Command, but we but we already had already signed to a major, so we had some backing and like you know there's you know, handing out like singles, you know, people, but on that tour, you know, we didn't know until later if anyone liked us, but when we were on stage, it was sheer hatred. People hated us. I mean, people <laughs> at the first show was, you know, where the Pistons play and uh, in Detroit. And I was so nervous. I couldn't look up. I didn't look up at the crowd. I just was playing like this and my guitar player, Omar just kept on slamming his guitar into my ride like the first two songs and I was, and I finally look up and I was like, what the fuck do you want? You know, excuse my language. And uh, he goes, look, and I, and I, and I, and I, and I look and the whole crowd and I'm serious. The whole crowd is flipping us off. <laughs> I mean, it was sheer. They hated us. They hated us. Hated us. It was, it was so bad by show three, Tom Morello had to come out and introduce us as his favorite band, you know, like, you know, obviously we weren't his favorite band, but he was just trying to help us. Like it oh was torture. God. And, um, but we, you know, we, we were in a, you know, we were in a, in a little cheap van and a trailer, you know, they were in buses and we were like, literally would drive our van into the arena and unload. We had a sound guy and that's it. <laughs> you know, like, like after the, after the show, I would literally get off my kit and start taking my drums off the arena stage. And all the all the union guys were like, "What the fuck are you doing?" Like, I'm all, "Oh, 
what am I supposed to do? They're like, we take your stuff off. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, that's how green we were. Like, we had no idea. But that's some of my favorite memories, you know. Oh, you can see just in, in these photographs of going that time. So when when did you release One Arm Scissor? Okay, so the, the picture we're looking at right now, uh, the one that just passed, uh -huh. that picture is literally outside of the amazing studio, you know, with major label money for the first time. It's called Indigo Ranch in Malibu, California. Hmm. That's literally the backdrop when you walk out of the studio. Um, and, uh, and so we recorded that record over a span of four months. Um, and, uh, and then the record came out in September of 2000. I think the single came out in August and it was, so like in shock that that song could be on the radio you know um because if, if you really listen to that song it's it's three different verses and then the only thing that connects them is the the three choruses and we're like there's no way people are going to play this on the radio you know and and we're you know to our surprise you know people ended up really connecting to that record you know and 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 all of a sudden we were selling all these all these records and and I think really we were just in shock because we still had the mentality of the punk rock band that we weren't used to any kind of success. And so the, the success that Relationship with Command had was just, you know, kind of shocking to us. So now you're, you're, you're touring, you're in this, in this growth process, which is what this was. It was constantly growing. But I mean, you started to see some results of what was happening. Oh, absolutely. We were, what we were noticing is that besides people at our shows and, and you know i was you know i was always really interested of how many records we're selling a week because you know i grew up on major labels so for me touring in the punk rock indie label circuit was like that was the weird thing to me you know i was like i want to see what we're selling i was really interested in that kind of stuff and i would just start seeing it grow and grow and grow and then what i really noticed is that i remember talking to uh a Boston guy that worked at our label and was, um, you know, helped sign Nirvana named Mark Cates. And he's now, now he's a manager. Wow. Um, and he, I remember he telling me like, you know, a lot of bands break in the U S and you, we slowly kind of try to break them everywhere else. And I, and I said, okay, he goes, you guys are breaking everywhere at the same time. And I remember feeling that anxiety because I was like, we were already tired. We were already exhausted. And the touring cycle hadn't really gone that long on Relationship Command, but we were so tired from the past. Um, and uh, and I, we know, and then I remember we, we booked a whole bunch of European shows and the agent we were using at that point was like purposely booked us in smaller places because he was very punk rock. Yeah. And so we, we would look out the window and we'd see thousands of people outside the venue. And I remember that creating a lot of anxiety in the band, always hearing that with another tours booked, another tours booked, another show sold out. Another, uh, you have five hours of press. That last European tour, fast forward in you know early 2001. So was like, it got so bad that everyone in the band refused to do press, but I didn't want to take away from the press. So I said, I'll do all the press. And obviously no one wants to talk to the drummer and I get it. Like at that point it was just, you know, it was about, you know, it's, I get it. It's about singers and guitar players and all that stuff. But I was just trying to keep the dream alive, to be honest with you. And I would, there's literally video of me 
screaming at the label outside of our bus going like hair all messed up because we used to film everything. And, and I was just like, if you want five hours of press, you only have me or you have nobody. And if you don't want me, I get it, but I'm out. Yeah. And, you know, and so it was a very harsh time and we weren't getting, we were, there was splintering going on. It's just because we were exhausted, but that part of, we saw success for about this long. Yeah. Yeah. Compared to all the other things before we didn't see success really until we got back together in 2012. And then we were, we, you know, we were bigger than we were when we broke up, which is the odd feeling on earth. You know, that, that, that had to be just, you know, shocking at May levels because when the band broke up, that's when, you know, you, they started forming different bands. And that's where some of the members went to Mars Volta, to Sparta, to Sparta. I mean, Sparta, so you were really yeah. kind of like, but then, you know, you know, you decide to like, you know, now you have a child. And now all of a sudden, now you're going through a whole nother change of what's happening. Yeah. So I, I, I did Sparta from 2001 to 2007. Yeah. Um, we released a lot of records. You know, we, we were, we were lucky enough to get, you know, um, you know, a deal really fast signed to DreamWorks records for our first record. Then we were on Geffen and then we were on Hollywood records. So we had, we saw a lot of success and, but I used to always make a joke, like after at the drive and we could have pooped on a plate and gotten signed. Like, it was just like, you know, we, uh, Omar and I laugh about it because we were, we laugh about how much money Mars Volta got for their first record and how much money that Sparta got for their first record. Because it's like, they barely heard music from us. They were just like, sign them, you know, like, so, but now it's, it's fun looking back to those stories because we were so competitive because we were so like, we missed each other, Yeah, you know? And we thought it was like, you know, hatred and blah, blah, blah. But it was really just like, I want to know what they're doing. And it was vice versa. We, you know, so that's kind of funny. You know, yeah, so we, we do Sparta for a lot of years, a lot of touring, a lot of great tours. Um, and then uh, we have we have our, um, you know, I find out that we're going to have our first child. Um, we end up, Sparta ends up taking a long needed break. Um, and And so at that point, so I stopped touring. You know, I didn't really know what I was going to do. I got offered a few touring things, but the reason I stopped doing Sparta is because I didn't want to tour, you know? So when you're a drummer and you're only known for being a drummer, that's the only gigs you're going to get, right? I was trying to like, say like, I could compose, I could write, I can do this, I could do that. But no one, you know, no one believes a, a drummer could play music, right? Uh, and, uh, um, and you have to earn that exactly right. Yeah, yeah, you have to earn it, and you know, uh, you know, the drummer's not the musician, right? Uh, uh, insert drummer joke here, um, and then, and so it was really hard for me to get anything going. Then my wife quits her job; she was a speech therapist, and so we're literally living off our savings and kind of scared, you know, dad for the first time, like, don't know what we're gonna do with our lives. So I one day asked my wife, I say you know, you've been helping me in my dream since, you know, 1996. Like how, what do you want to do? Like you've been a speech therapist for years. And she said, I'm tired of start, starting speech therapy companies for other people. Like I want to do it on our own. So I was like, well, I'll figure out the business. You write a service description. We ended up getting a contract with the state and we, we started smile pediatric therapy and diagnostics. We lived on three clients that she was seeing and, uh, and slowly, slowly grew in 2008 and got our first employee in 2009. 
And, uh, you know, fast forward, we're very lucky. We, at this point, we have 35 employees. Um, and uh, we're lucky enough to say that we've helped thousands of kids from like a small stutter to all the way uh, kids with uh, autism. And so we are uh, very, very lucky to be part of that. That's our playground for yeah. the second business we started, uh, Wonder Preschool uh, in, this, in the same building. And it, that was my wife's other dream. And so we started a preschool as well. And with, and they live and the, the businesses live in, you know, the same building. And uh, we're very lucky to have have these, you know, other entities and fast forward to, uh, yeah, three kids. They're bigger now, but like, yeah, God, so, they look small there. Uh, uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, it's, it's, we're very lucky to still have that now. You know, because I can't stay still. I started, uh, you know, I did a lot of trailer composing, movie trailer composing in 2009. Uh, I, I was lucky to, uh, whoa, power <laughs> went off in my room. Um, and, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to meet a guy that, you know, uh, had some faith in me. And I started doing, I started doing, you know, um, um, composing for trailers and stuff. And I did that until I scored, I, I co-scored this video game called uh, Splinter Cell in 2013, right after that, at the drive-in run. And then here I am now, uh, and I, I, I became friends with a composer who's an extremely talented, Anthony Baldino. And we started a new company called Repeater, Repeater Music. And uh, we're at the infant uh, stage, but we're, um, we're very lucky in the sense that we're in the in the in the thick of it and we're getting some good calls from really cool movies and it's really exciting so it's kind of another arm of me not just being a drummer and just pushing the envelope and trying to learn more and you know um i'm trying to get back into composing and uh you know and all that stuff alongside helping run a company so you know it's it's kind of a crazy time right now with now three companies three kids and you know, being married, and you know, I just finished some Gone Is Gone writing as well uh, a few weeks ago. So I'm still doing that project, and so it's been it's been kooky, but it's uh, I'm very lucky to be able have, to have done it all. Well, to say that you have done it all, you are continuing to do it all. I mean, that, that's the, you know, you're in the process of still doing it all, and uh, you know, Gone Is Gone. You're doing some writing for them. You also did some writing for some game, you know, some some game scoring. So I mean, you're really kind of like spreading out you know, to a wide variety of seeing exactly where your musical talent is and you have earned it. You have now proven yourself to be that composer, to be that, that authorship of, of this emotion, even with gone is gone. Yeah. I mean, the, the gone is gone guys have been very, um, just very like, you know, I, I get to play, you know, you know, Troy Sanders and Troy Van Leeuwen are so extremely talented and they give me a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of leeway into me getting off the drum set and writing synth parts. And, and, uh, you know, I was, I had the privilege of producing alongside Troy Van Leeuwen, our last record. And so it was really nice to have that freedom to be in here and take the reins as on, on, on the production side, you know, did, got my drums all out of the way and then just kind of started writing synth parts and, and kind of fitting the record together and making it work in it was kind of our quarantine record this last record we did yeah. and so it was it was kind of like i just kind of took it upon myself to finish it and so it's really nice to have the trust of guys that are 
so extremely talented and to let me kind of take the reins on it. Um, and I, I've kind of, you know, I kind of pushed myself into all these different fields. Like I pushed myself into learning finance for my two companies. I pushed myself to be a drummer and at the drive-in. I pushed myself to learn how to compose. And I'm obviously not a master at any of these things, but uh, I one thing I'm, I feel that I'm a master of is just always uh, trying, not giving up and trying to, uh, you know, any idea I have, I try to take it to a, the next level and it doesn't always work, obviously, but I refuse to give up on it. And that's the thing. That's the only reason that I've been able to do music for so long and and not just play drums in bands, but write in bands and now compose. Uh, and so it's I'm, I'm very lucky to have had people around me that have supported me in that respect that allowed me to be, uh, you know, quote unquote, more than a guy behind a kit. Boy, absolutely. And, you know, the other two hats you have to add to that is that of being a husband and a father on top of all that. So that's a whole nother level of what you've embraced really, really well. But I got to mention that you're talking about people supporting you. You've been with Vader since 1999. Yep. So just, just talk about some of the products, you know, the powerhouse, the power 5B. Oh my goodness. So Vader was my first endorsement. And so it was a, a massive thing. You know, I was, I was like, you know, uh, my amazing rep, uh, Chad, uh, Randolina, he, Brandolini, like he, he, what he did, sorry, I was in the middle of a thought and I, I messed up because I heard something outside my door. Um, <laughs> and so he was the kind of the first person that said, okay, I'll send you a few things. We were begging people. We were begging like, you know, Zildren and, and uh, Pasty and, and every stick company. And we're just begging and begging and begging. And it just never kind of, it just never worked out. But, you know, Chad, uh, you know, was the first person to say, yeah, I'll send you stuff. And I, I started with the, 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 the 5B. Then I went to powerhouse for a lot of years. Right. And then I went, and then I'm, I, I still use the power 5B. Um, and this is not the acorn tip, but I, I, I like to waste. So I use everything. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and now I use the acorn tip, uh, per Chad's recommendation. And, uh, and and so it's it's been it's been a pretty amazing to have someone like Vader around me. I'll give you an example. I called Chad in 2009. I said I'm not touring. I'm not going to tour. I'm going to have my first kid. I'm trying to get in composing. I was wondering if you could send me some stuff that I could have fun with to try to play. I'm 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 helping write a a drum cue with sound design you know, all the big drums that you would hear at the end of a trailer when you're watching, you know, when you're at the theater. And I'm trying to, and I need things that make different sounds. And I thought he was going to send me like a little box of like, you know, you know, acorn stuff and, and, and all that stuff, dowels. And, and, but he literally sent me a massive box about that big. And it was literally everything you could dream of to create a different sound on a drum or a cymbal. And that kind of support, is 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 it just doesn't happen that often yeah. and luckily for me all my endorsers that i've been now with for many many years have been that supportive even when i call them about you know like hey uh, i'm doing a benefit for my pediatric company 
oh yeah, we'll send stuff. You want to give stuff away. You want to like, it's just the support you get is, you know, yes, it's years of, of giving back to each other. But, you know, Chad Brandon Lee was just kind of like the guy that first took the, the, the foot forward and said, I got you. And yeah. to get that first box of sticks was like, oh my God, I break sticks all the time. And now I have all these sticks and I got them, you know, at a discount at that point. And, and so it just meant the world to me. And, 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 and I think, you know, sometimes it's just business, you know, when you're sending out gear to, 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 to drummers and percussionists and, or whoever you work with, but to the, like, to me, it was like, I finally felt that I was doing it right. Like someone was noticing and Vader was the first company to notice. And that's, that's a big deal. It, it is a huge deal. And the fact that, you know, Chad Brandolini as a, as a visionary for artists and relations, he's able to really kind of see where talent is at and where people who are dedicated. So he's got an incredible eye like that. And that's just a, a natural gift that he has. And then you throw in Alan Vader at the head of the company who manufactures literally the best product that is out there now. So you've got Absolutely. an incredible combination of people that are supportive of what they are. I want to ask you one final question. What would you say to this, you know, this younger generation that wants to get involved in the music industry and maybe how they can face certain challenges and what would, what would, you know, kind of, what would you say to someone like that, that's facing challenges, but they want to be involved in the music industry. What kind of advice would you give them? You know, like, you know, the, the, the line that's always said to people and you always hear in movies and you always hear, you know, like life is that don't give up, keep going, keep chasing your dream, blah, blah, blah. And I believe in that wholeheartedly because I haven't stopped chasing my dream. But I also believe that life will take you into another direction. Um, and I'll tie this in again to Vader. This is crazy. And I was, I was at the low of my lows. Like I didn't know what I was gonna do in my life in 2008. We just had our first, our, our first kid right before we started Smile. And Chad invited me to a, a Vader get together at a restaurant here in the Valley in LA. And I went and I was just kind of like, or oh, I'm going to see all these successful drummers and I'm going to be more bummed out. And I met, and I'm forgetting his name right now. And I feel really bad, but he played drums for the black eyed peas when they were more of a band. And I met them in, in Australia uh, on big day out when I was without the driving. And, and I, and he's like, how's it going? And I said, it's great. Just like, don't know what I'm going to do in my life. You know, just had a kid, not working, blah, blah, blah. And he looked at me and he goes, you'll be surprised what a child brings to your life. And I said, wow, okay. I, I didn't know what he meant, but he's like, it makes you go in directions that you never thought you would. And so getting back to your question is that, yes, never stop on your dream. But if life takes you on a detour, it doesn't mean you don't take it because it isn't your dream. I always took the detours. And to this day, I take the detours. But in the back of my head, even if I'm doing music that month professionally or just for fun, it's always there. And I always work on it. If it's in the middle of the night, because I had to work a day job and I, I, I did that, you know, ups and downs in my life, especially in 08 and 09. And, and it just never give up on it. But if you get a detour, it might be for a reason. My detour ended up starting two businesses for us that help support our family in a lot of ways. Uh, and now help support thousands of other families. And so, and, and so that, 
I believe in don't give up on your dream, but I also believe is if you're getting a detour, at least go down the road for a second and see why you're getting detoured. Well, that is fantastic. I believe the drummer that you were talking about was Terence Yoshiaki. That's him. <laughs> that's, again, Wow. that's Chad helping me out with this here too backstage. So it's just fantastic. So think of this here. This is great advice. You really give people the chance of saying that, you know, what you are is a sign of hope. And that's really what this is about. You just don't know what the next term will bring to you. And you have to have that, that endless hope, as they say, hope springs eternal. And that's just what that yeah. comes down to. If you keep that level of hope, there can be that rainbow. There can be that next position. But you got to have the perseverance, which you clearly freaking have at a high level, to never give up. And that's really what perseverance is about. Never, never, never give up. So you are that best example of it. I must say, Tony, this has been an absolute pleasure. You really have hit the nail on the head with this here at many different levels. You know, you have a career that is still in the development, but more than just a musical career, you are an entrepreneur. Music is a part of that. And being an entrepreneur means you have much greater you know, responsibility. And you are doing that at such a high level. Really, man, my, my, my compliment to you and your wife and your wonderful family. Thank you so much for your time, Tom. And I, 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 um, I'm very appreciative of the time and I'm appreciative that people want to hear the story. It means the world to this day. And uh, thank you to Vader for always being there for me and being supportive and especially um, Chad over there for always having my back in whatever I'm doing. And I appreciate you guys so much and I appreciate all the time. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Tony. Stay well, stay happy and good luck and success to you and your family and your businesses. Thank you. You too, sir. Thanks. Fantastic. Bye -bye. What a story, what a, what a personality, and what just a sheer sign of hope that Tony brings us, which is just so great to hear. These are the messages that we really need to hear more of in the world. So, Tony, I thank you so much. Fantastic. And thank you, Vader. Now, again, next week, the third. Oh, my gosh. We're going to bring her in. Haley Brownell is going to be here. Oh, my gosh. She's joining us from Los Angeles. Great drummer, singer, songwriter, guitar player. I mean, she's so great. Done several television shows, and now she's out there with this rising star, Olivia Rodrigo. She'll stop by as, and, uh, and talk to us. She did Saturday Night Live. She's just such a great, great person. And she's involved with Hit Like a Girl. So we'll hear a lot of the, the challenges that, that sometimes females go through. But she'll enlighten us and also give us an equal time of her, of her incredible stories and her level of hope and what she's doing. So thank you all so much. Thank you, Vader. It's been great again. Another fantastic event. Tony Kajar, thank you so much, guys. Stay well. Stay safe. I'll see you guys real soon. Thanks. Bye-bye.